every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with William Tyree, CMO of Revenue.io, formerly known as Ring DNA. Revenue.io is a RevOps platform that uses AI to transform sales teams into high-performing revenue engines. William is a two-time CMO and full-stack B2B marketer with a tangible passion for all things demand gen. He's been named one of Comparably's 49 marketing leaders to follow and is a frequent contributor to AdAge, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and more. On this episode, William discusses the do's and don'ts of a company rebrand, the importance of creating rich media, and what makes the biggest difference for maximizing ROI on your marketing investment. But before we begin, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between William Tyree, CMO of Revenue.io, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today we are joined by a special guest, William, how are you? I am great. I'm excited to be here. This is one of my favorite podcasts and just thrilled to be on. Well, we're excited to have you and we are ushering in a brand new era, an exciting era for you as a company. Uh, you just announced your new name. I, we'll share it for the listeners. That's right. Uh, our new name is Revenue.io. How exciting. So we're going to we're gonna get into that. The artist formerly known as Ring DNA is now Revenue.io, and our <laughs> listeners can go to Revenue.io to, uh, to, to check out everything there. Uh, we're going to talk about all things demand gen, marketing, and your background. So let's get into it. What was uh, your first job in demand gen? You know, I got into demand gen quite by accident. I was actually running operations at an agency here in Los Angeles. And, you know, eventually it was just one of those things where I ended up kind of getting stuck with marketing and then really, really loving it. So my first job in demand gen was honestly like VP of marketing. So it was very much kind of a trial by fire situation. So flash forward to today, tell us about what it means to be CMO at revenue.io. Yeah. So uh, we're really lucky. Revenue Dia, Dia, uh, we, we have the opportunity to actually, you know, sell to sellers. So most of our customers are, you know, VPs of sales, chief sales officers, chief revenue officers, people like that. So I feel like, you know, we're, we're selling kind of go to market uh, technology to people who, you know, actually do go to market for a living. So um, there's also quite a few marketers too that we sell to. So there's a lot of marketers now that manage sales teams and and are otherwise kind of you know either supporting or directly managing you know BDR groups. So when you ask me you know what's it like to be CMO there, it's really awesome because I get to meet a lot of the world's great kind of go to market specialists. I get to spend time understanding kind of you know where they're winning, how they're winning what they want to scale, what their pain points are, kind of what it's like on the ground. 
it's really, really, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to be in this situation. Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? This is where you go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. Starting off, who does Revenue.io serve? Who are your customers? Okay, so our customers are the people leading sales teams. So a VP of sales, director of sales, chief revenue officer, what you have you. And then at the end of the day, what is your structure to acquire those customers? How do you structure your marketing organization, uh, your sales and marketing uh, kind of go-to-market org? Sure. Everything that we do is through the lens of you know educating the market. So we do a lot of research, a lot of content marketing, um, you know, a lot of thought leadership out there. So for sure, we do a, you know, we have a full stack marketing program with everything from, you know, account based marketing platforms, we use intent data, all that kind of stuff. But I, my philosophy has always been that you can't really do anything in marketing today in B2B without just really stellar content. And so we put out podcasts, we do webinars, we sponsor events, all that. It's really about spending quality time talking about the challenges and opportunities that our core, core customers you know, face and trying to serve up research and insights that, that will help them do that. And so walk me through what a chief revenue officer, when they, you know, they hop, on, uh, hop on the platform, they, they go to revenue.io, um, what is the before revenue.io to after? What is that transformation like? Sure. So, you know, a lot of our customers are struggling with things like they can't, you know, their teams aren't productive enough. Their reps don't know where to focus. There's too much guesswork. And so, you know, what we do for, for their reps, when their reps log on, their reps immediately understand what accounts to focus on, what leads to go after, who to contact. And what we do is we collect engagement data across the entire platform, email, text, you know, voice conversations, capture that, analyze all of it, um, and then serve up next best actions and recommendations. So for example, if a, if a rep, you know, is on a conversation, you know, just like this, and they might even talk, be talking about a specific deal, there would be prescriptive advice and recommendations served up, you know, during the conversation to help them get to the next best stage. Just like when you're driving a car and you're trying to get, you know, you're trying to navigate, you know, a city that you don't know well, and you're getting turn by turn instructions. And then, so what's like, what's the outcome of, uh, of that? What, you know, when they come back and they're like, William, I got to tell you, this is the best thing I ever bought. What, what are they saying? Yeah. You know, typically they say things like, for the first time ever, our reps are actually adhering to the things that we train them, right? Because, you know, reps, just like all of us are human, and, you know, they forget 90% of what they learn in sales training. So this actually reinforces, you know, the sales training and, and helps them enact it in, in real time. The outcomes of that are, you know, faster growth, more reps achieving quota. It's also better for managers too, though, because I think managers are under a lot of pressure a lot of times they're carrying their own bag. They're they're expected to sell while managing a team. And, you know, this really helps not only the reps track, you know, their own performance and improvement, but it also helps the managers scale. 
we have customers that have previously said, I've got no time to coach any of my reps. We're just too busy um, working on deals, trying to close things to then saying, now I have time to coach and then saying, hey, I can actually manage twice the number of reps now that I used to. That's pretty remarkable. That's a great stat. Talk about just, you know, of value to, to, you know, person hours, employee hours. That's, that's pretty amazing. So you, obviously you run the marketing org. What falls under your purview versus sales? What, how do you organize your teams in terms of, you know, marketing, demand gen, you know, corporate marketing, all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I think some of the ways that we're, that we're organized are probably not shocking. Like we have a demand gen leader, a demand gen team that does everything from, you know, all your kind of direct ad spend, account targeting, looking at intent data, all that. So so there's a whole unit under just demand gen. They also work directly with the sales team on ABM campaigns, so joint go-to-market initiatives. One thing that we do that's a little unconventional is we have content marketing and product marketing in one unit. So, you know, the reason that we like that is, I, I think I mentioned before that research is super important to us. We feel like with our content to be really adding a lot of value to the market and educating the market. And I think that having product marketing and content and research all in one unit, it helps us be much more focused on the value and understanding kind of really where the buyers are, as opposed to sometimes you see product marketing, you know, copy written out there and it's just, it's so technical. It just puts you to sleep or it's so focused on like features, things like that. So I love having kind of the educational unit and the, and the people who actually like write ads for, for demand gen all in one area. That way we don't get too kind of wonky in the weeds and, and, you know, speak over, you know, our, our, our audience. The other thing that we do, and this is kind of new for us is I've always been really big on having, you know, a marketing operations person. I think that marketing operations, sales operations, those folks are the unsung heroes of, you know, garden market initiatives. But we've also want to make sure that in terms of alignment, um, recently we came to the conclusion that it's really important to have a separate revenue ops team. So we recently made the move to actually break, you know, all of those operations roles out into their own rev ops unit, and they report directly up to the CEO. So it's actually amazing because it helps us be much, much more aligned with not only the sales team, but also customer success. That's really fascinating. So, I mean, it, both of those things were, were super fascinating because I, I totally agree with the, the content marketing piece. Um, and it's kind of one of those things where you do think about it and you're like, we have both these people writing uh, and content marketers always obviously very good hopefully, uh, always really good at writing and creating that stuff. And then you have the product marketing that, that are speaking more language that if you cross those two things over, those skill sets aren't always, aren't always one-to-one. So that's interesting that you put them together. Um, I'd imagine there's some kind of cross-pollination that needs to happen there. There totally is. There totally is. And, you know, it, it's really interesting to just seeing how many people, how, how differently people even define product marketing or what a product marketer is. I would say that when you're looking for a product marketer today, it's probably one of the most perplexing hunts out there in the market because, you know, I've probably interviewed about a hundred of them in the last year. And sometimes I think people think product marketing means like you're just like a general marketer. 
Like I've literally had, you know, been through a good, you know, interview. And then the second interview, it's really clear that it's a person who's just a generalist, right? It's like, yeah, here's my SEO plan and here's my, my, my AdWords plan and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I really think our philosophy is, you know, product marketing really exists to kind of translate, you know, really in our space, really, really technical value and, and product functionality, you know, into like a message that, that is exciting for people, um, is informative and, and really kind of adds to their life somehow. It's such a great point. I mean, you know, it's one of the things that we struggle with as, as we create, um, you know, podcasts for our customers is, you know, so many marketers just want to talk product or just features benefits. Right. And, and so you want to get them to be telling a story. You want them, you know, we always talk about the, like, you know, they're Luke Skywalker. You're the, you know, you're the lightsaber, right? Or you're, uh, you know, your sales rep or your, your team is, is Obi-Wan and, uh, your product is the, is the lightsaber. And, uh, and so many product marketers want to like, like, you know, the lightsaber it's green and it like, you know, can fit in your, you know, your belt and, you know, all those sort of things. And the, yet the, the content marketer wants to tell like Luke's backstory, you know, it's like, you know, he grew up, uh, when he was 17, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think that that's marrying those two things together where it's like, you know, part of the reason why we all love Star Wars is to, you know, see people, you know, fighting with laser swords, but it's like, it is the combination of the backstory plus the purpose, plus something that's memorable, plus something that actually shows like why you would buy. Cause at the end of the day, like they, they still, the person needs to know like why would I choose, you know, revenue.io versus a competitor. Yes. I, I absolutely love that allegory. I think you're completely right. And maybe just to get a little geekier in the star Wars analogy, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to the hero's journey. You know, it's that, that, you know, millennia old storyline. And I think that's why product marketers have to be really dynamic. Um, you know, like you're talking about the backstory, like understanding what motivates the people you're selling to and the persona is really, really important, especially kind of in the beginning of that relationship where people are becoming aware of your brand, they're becoming aware of what you might be able to do for them. But there's that part in Star Wars, though, that always comes, and even in the first movie, where then they're sitting down with a technical engineer, and they're like, hey, Luke, you have to go you know, into like the, the inner abyss, which is the Death Star, right? And like, here's this little piece that you have to kind of shoot your laser into to blow up the whole thing, right? So in that moment, th that's kind of like in the customer journey, where you're dealing with your frontline buyers, right? And then they bring in kind of their value, the enterprise at least, then they bring in maybe their IT team or other people kind of to, to talk that, that want to know how it works. And they want to then know like how private is it and all those kind of things. So I feel like product marketers have to be dynamic enough to serve all those different audiences at different stages of the journey. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your most uncuttable budget items? Sure. I, I think that for us, one is, you know, rich media. So I think it's really important to hit buyers uh, and customers where they are so you can add value. So for us, it's kind of the media company within marketing. 
that produces podcasts, uh, you know, videos and, and social media, you know, so, so making sure that, that you're, that you absolutely are never in a position where you have to recoil from that today is really, really important. I would not have said that five years ago. So that's one, I think second is, you know, operations so much of marketing and sales today is interpreting market intelligence data and engagement data that you have and making sure that marketing sales success, they all understand who to focus on and where to focus, right? The, you know, these accounts are where we can really win and you know, where should, what you should you ignore? Right? So I think a great operations team kind of helps you do that. And, And I think, you know, in terms of, in terms of the other thing that would be uncuttable, I think to some extent it's LinkedIn. And I know that's a really controversial statement because a lot of people have trouble getting value out of that channel. But, um, and there's a lot wrong with the channel for sure. There's a lot of reasons why it doesn't work for people. But I also think that if you're talking about trying to have brand awareness, have visibility, you know, with a very, very specific set of target accounts, you know, right now there's nothing like it. Let's unpack all three of those because I, I love those answers. The first one, I like how you said rich media because I think that we we lack a, a good word for this right now. Uh, you know, as a company who, <laughs> Caspian is literally podcast as a service. So I, I think about this constantly and I think that there's not really a good name. So maybe I need to rebrand as, as rich media as a service. But, um, but I think about this all the time and I think that we are at the point now which is kind of what you said, which is like five years ago. Okay, maybe. But now it seems like it's a prerequisite. It seems like it's something that you have to be doing because you need to invest in really good, high quality content. And a lot of folks don't have, you know, an engine with that. You all have created some absolutely killer assets. The Sales Enablement Podcast with Andy Paul is freaking great for our listeners. Go check it out. Uh, It's, you know, as someone who, you know, I've created whatever 30 plus podcasts. I definitely look at that one and I say, this is, you know, a job well done. So kudos to your team, but I'm curious, like that, I'm sure that green lighting that at the beginning was probably like, Hey, I don't know if we're going to make this investment. So I'm curious, like what went into, to that decision? Sure. That's kind of an interesting story. I had known Andy Paul for years. So that was just a person, you know, that, that I knew and that ring DNA knew we had done webinars and we, we really liked his point of view on many things. So for that reason, we actually acquired the podcast. So it had a different name. It was with Andy Paul, a slightly different format before. But that was one where we thought that actually makes sense for us to, you know, basically acquire that, you know, acquire a podcast that already has traction, some momentum, and then team up with that team to just blow it up. And so I think that our design team, our brand team did a great job kind of making, you know, something new out of something, you know, that existed and having some exponential growth on it. So that was great. But my philosophy on that one was for that one, you're already reaching a lot of the influencers, you know, that we want. So let's kind of, you know, take a shortcut with that. And also our team, I knew that our team is really, really good about at repackaging content. So on a podcast, as you know, so much like gold comes out of uh, an interview sometimes. So our team consistently, you know, kind of mines the podcast for things that we can use that we put into other assets though, that we put out, whether it's eBooks or whatnot. 
So that's the story on that one. RevOps podcast is one that we created from scratch and we launched it not too long ago. That one is interesting because that one actually features people from a RevOps team, sales and marketing team. And sometimes it can be very difficult to measure the value of a podcast. That one has had, um, I wanted to call out the, the value of certain kinds of podcasts, even on recruiting. So that one is when, when people get on and they hear you know, the interplay between sales, marketing, and others on the podcast, it tells them something about our culture. So invariably, I'll be interviewing somebody and they'll actually mention an episode on that podcast and say, that was the one that, that made me think it would be fun to work there or that you have an environment where your revenue teams really respect each other. You know, it's something that content and whether it's podcast, you know, podcast content, I, you know, it is brilliant and it's elegant for its simplicity and the fact that you can bring it with you anywhere you can do it. It's hands-free. It's all those things, whether it's that, whether it's, you know, a video series or a podcast series that also is, is a video series, any type of like relationship driven format, uh, storytelling format where you're featuring people from your company and things like that. I think people vastly underestimate how many intentional things that you can do with it and then unintentional things that that it has. I was just mentioning this recently that every single candidate that I that we interview because we're interviewing a bunch of people for Caspian brings up I just love, you know, I love hearing this episode or, you know, reading your founding story or whatever it is. And I think that just sometimes we just really forget how important it is to go out and do that stuff. Like back in the day, you know, we had a PR team that would do all sorts of placements and booking and, you know, all that sort of stuff and put, and, and put your story everywhere. And now we're, we're the stewards of our own story in a way that we never could have been. And I mean, this stuff just like works really well and it's just so much more memorable and impactful. And at the end of the day, that's what you're trying to be as a marketer, right? You're trying to stand out. You're trying to be remarkable and like rich media, like you said, is great for that. And when it comes to repackaging, you know, you don't need to have, someone doesn't need to listen to a 50 minute podcast episode or, or read a, you know, read every one of the posts on your blog or all those things. It's like, they could see, you know, a 45 second clip on LinkedIn, they could, you know, they could read, you know, part of one parts of your series. And that's, that can be good enough to get them to be like, wow, these people make great stuff. And uh, I should feel, fill out a, to go get a demo. I could not agree more. I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, there's something else too, that I think podcasts help with, and you could never measure it, but it's sort of creating or enhancing a brand crush. And I think, for example, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there that have had a, a Salesforce brand crush for years, right? And there's so many reasons why. But Salesforce is such a huge company, right? Sometimes people get caught up in stories about the stock price or whatever. But when somebody like you, in, you know, has a really great in, interview with people who are at Salesforce, as you've done recently, you know, you listen to those people and you're like, oh, gosh, I... You know, that's why I love it. It's about the brand values that they're talking about. It's about their approach to the market, you know, and other things that they're doing. So I think that that's huge as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like, you know, if a candidate wants to go figure out what it's like to work at Caspian, you know, we have uh, hours and hours and hours of, of uh, examples of what it's like to, to listen to me talk about different stuff and they could go check that out. And I think that that's it's a huge, it's a huge value add for, for any company that's looking to do those things. And I think it, it pairs nicely with this idea of like ROI and how when you are placing bets on things like this, 
that you have to have the right portfolio approach to think about content because these are the things that like, you know, we talk about content compounds, right? When you get to, you know, when you had three episodes of your podcast out there, you're like, eh, okay, whatever. But once, you know, like we have, you know, like we just passed, uh, whatever, 50,000 listeners for this show. We just did, you know, our 50th episode not too long ago. Like that's still just getting started. And that stuff compounds over time and continues to grow and new people find it and old people like phase out and all that stuff. It is constantly evolving and growing. And when you invest in those type of endeavors that it will pay off, um, it can pay off short term, it can pay off middle term and long term, but it's just a very different motion than, you know, paying for, uh, for, you know, ad clicks. 100%. Okay. So moving into marketing ops, which you talked about, how underinvested do you think this is for CMOs? Marketing ops? Um, pretty underinvested, actually. I would say that most of the people I talk to out in the market feel like they don't have quite as much support as they needed. And I think that the reason is, you know, we're 10 or 12 years into kind of this explosion of MarTech, what we now know as MarTech and the SaaS space. And I think that there are so many tools required from so many vendors to be able to compete right now. And marketing has this unenviable job of stitching it all together with all these integrations that are sometimes imperfect and make it all work, right? And I think a lot of the burden falls to operations to do that because I've always been a very hands-on person, you know, building my own reports, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's getting complex to the point where you almost need to turn things over to a dedicated team that just thinks about all the routing, all the signals, all the notifications, all the automations, um, you know, that's that's almost all they do. And, and I think if you do that, your whole team becomes much, much more efficient. And your team can actually focus then on being creative and strategic versus, you know, reporting. To me, like, that's the biggest waste of time right now. Spend time on analysis and creativity, but, you know, just trying to, like, stitch stuff together and make it work it's really worth investing in that. Okay. So the third thing that you mentioned was LinkedIn. You said that this is kind of like, you know, people have a bit of a, you know, both sides of the aisle take on this. Why do you find LinkedIn so effective? Yeah. So again, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of caveat this by saying that LinkedIn has pulled off something really remarkable is that it's not for every industry. It's not for every type of role. Like there's certainly industries where like almost an entire industry will be like a ghost in LinkedIn. They just don't exist or they don't spend time there. But for industries where people really do spend time there, uh, like ours, sales reps or people we sell to are all over LinkedIn. There's really nothing like it in terms of really being able to get, you know, a message that you want in front of very specific target accounts, companies, and, and roles within those target accounts at, at different times. So for that reason, it's really, I think, continues to be a must-have. I think that what everybody's trying to do, though, is figure out how to be more efficient with it. So uh, I'd say when you're spinning on LinkedIn to, to grow awareness and create an open door for sales with very specific campaigns, it can be really a great value. I think that kind of an always-on LinkedIn strategy with target accounts can you know, really ratchet up your acquisition costs, though. So you have to be really creative and look for ways to kind of make it work. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's one of those things that's kind of evolving. 
And um, I think what's amazing about it is just that it is still so unique in the market. There isn't anything else out there right now that really competes directly with it. It's just such a great lesson in like be where your customers are, right? All your customers are on LinkedIn. Yeah, for us. I mean, like consumer brands, they might all be on Instagram. Yeah, or or Reddit or Quora or whatever, you know, whatever, wherever your people are, you know, developers, they're not, they're not spending a lot of time on LinkedIn, right? Uh, they're, you know, g- go find the Discord groups or whatever it is. No, it's, it's, a, it's a great lesson. Switching gears to your rebrand. So you just went through a big rebrand. Uh, we were actually talking about it recently on the show about how companies are moving towards, uh, you know, a company name.io and you just did it. So I'm curious. So first off, you know, changing from Ring DNA, uh, established brand, longtime brand in the space. Why the change, and how did you go about thinking about the name change? Yeah, sure. So, it's actually a transition we've been thinking about making for some time. Ring DNA has you know some market awareness, some equity. Um, we've certainly been able to use that brand to get some of the world's best sales team as our customers, right? So very grateful that we've been able to be with it for so long, for sure. But I think at some point, you have to really get real and kind of look in the mirror and also listen, you know, listen to, you know, other people around you. And I think that the name Ring DNA became so synonymous with like the world's greatest sales dialer that sometimes it was hard to get past that. So we would say, hey, did you know that now we have conversation intelligence? Now that we, you know, we have a multi-channel sales engagement tool, we have guided selling, things like that. And inevitably, I think as we grew from a single point solution to a platform solution with a lot of different offerings to, you know, optimize revenue teams, I think that you just have to kind of get real at some point and say, okay, the name's holding us back. We then kind of stepped back and we did about an eight month process where, we talked to customers, we talked to analysts, we, we talked to them about kind of this problem that we saw and got feedback, got ideas. We then, you know, started talking to people inside the company, you know, our most creative folks, and just really testing it out. And the thing that there's two kind of things that, that are happening in the market. One is everybody we sell to is focused on a go-to-market program meant to drive revenue. The other thing that's happening, though, is the RevOps movement. And I think RevOps movement kind of came out of this, you know, maybe I, I, I draw it back to a 2006 Harvard Business Review article, you know, on the importance of sales and marketing alignment that kind of has evolved since then. And really this movement of, you know, trying to really use a data first strategy to, you know, get all your teams on the same page to the point where then you can actually use AI to analyze data and and help make people's jobs better in real time, kind of shaping the future of work. So, um, you know, that idea of bringing guidance through RevOps to, you know, sales teams um, is, is really ultimately what led us to, you know, the final decision to kind of execute the rebrand. Anything that surprised you? Do you have a rebrand playbook for this? Uh, any surprises? Yeah, I think that a lot of things about the rebrand really surprised me. So yeah, I think what comes out of this is probably a playbook. But I think the first rule is, you know, throw out the playbook. Um, just because every company is different. I think that the thing that is common that we did right was actually not rushing it in the early months. Because in the early months, I think it really should be a process where you know, you're getting advice from people who have no idea who you are, and then also people who really know your company well. 
and really taking a hard look at that honest, candid feedback. That part is great. But I think the part that maybe is underemphasized is once you've made your decision, go fast <laughs> because time becomes your enemy uh, at that moment. Once you're, you're, you've decided that you know, you're really sure on what you should be doing and all the components that go into that, the quicker that you can actually execute you know, on that plan, the better. Do you have a favorite uh, campaign that you've uh, run over the years? Yeah, I, I think I do. There's a campaign that actually we got, I think we were a finalist for a Digiday award on. It was called America's Top or World's Top Call Coach. And essentially what we did was we had a bunch, it was a video contest and we had invited sales managers, mostly sales managers to upload videos of themselves kind of listening to and then and then responding to like sometimes bad sales calls, really bad sales calls. And so it was really fun because we had different awards for different things like, you know, the toughest coach, the coach that was the most creative, the most helpful, you know, things like that. And it really kind of got, you know, a, a lot of people from our customer base involved. It got a lot of people that we wanted to kind of sell to out in the market kind of, you know, engage with us and, and really kind of liking our brand. And it was just really successful. It was kind of one of those things that you, that you do because it's fun, it's educational, informative, it's collaborative, but it also ultimately kind of goes back to, you know, what we're offering in the market, but it's not so on the nose that, that it seems like you're selling to anybody. Any worst campaign ever, or, uh, or maybe biggest learning experience? I think the biggest learning experience is always the one that you alluded to before, which is like not hanging out where your customers live. So I think that's just kind of like a theme that I've seen over and over, you know, in my career is there's always, there's always, you know, an idea like whatever's hot is going to be suggested, strongly suggested by somebody with influence, like, you know, Hey, let's go all in on a clubhouse strategy. Let's all go all in on an Instagram strategy, whatever, you know, what have you. And, um, you know, I think that that's why it's really, really important just to kind of test everything before you go all in. So, yeah, nothing huge that sticks out. But but I think that's the kind of the common theme is is just kind of going where your customers aren't. How do you view your website? Wow, it's a really big question. We view it as for sure our most important digital asset, not the only important digital asset, but really, really important. So we view it as, you know, the place where people can come, not only to kind of learn about us for the first time, but it should be a resource for the industry. So we have a big section on it called the Sales Academy. And it's filled with everything from podcast episodes to ebooks, research that people kind of kind of download and use tools, playbooks, things like that. That really is most useful. The other kind of answer to that question, though, is we don't underestimate how much influence it has throughout a deal cycle. Sometimes when you're trying to sell to a really, really big company, like an enterprise company, and it's like a nine-month sales cycle, year-long sales cycle, what you'll notice over time is that as the deal gets closer and closer to the end, the actual engagement increases, as opposed to the way that people traditionally think about it, is that like all the, the engagement with the site is at the top, we know right now that that's false. That's kind of the beginning. It almost looks smaller at the top. And then as it becomes real, what you do is you see people engaging with all your content. If you have great content, 
And, you know, the more they engage with your content, um, if you're doing a great job, then the more likely the deal is going to close and your content actually becomes a great predictor of deal closures. I love that. I love that idea that that content becomes a predictor of deal closers. That's sweet. Okay, let's get to our next segment, the desktop. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career, William? Yeah, I think the one that I'm thinking about is about a target industry. And I think it's not uncommon, but it's one where we had somebody at a company I worked at who wanted to really shift a lot of resources to, you know, going headlong into an industry that we had no experience in. And, you know, it, that can be really, really expensive if you just kind of jump in with a, a huge budget in an area that you don't know about. And you're kind of balancing there this idea of having a first mover advantage, which is real. It can't be discounted with the other idea, which is, well, we don't know what we don't know. Right. And so, you know, for sure, I think that is one of those um, experiences where, you know, we, we had to do a lot of research really quickly and actually, you know, what we ended up doing is not going headlong into that industry because we were able to actually look at our data and show engagement history across all these attempted deals in that sector and say like, hey, we can show you every time that deal went south and identify the reasons in that industry. So yeah, it was kind of a big deal, but we we got past it. And thankfully, we I think we saved a few million dollars by uh, by by not kind of going in there as, as, as hard and, and fast as we should have. Let's get to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with qualified. You know, you know qualified very well, so I don't need to sell you on them, on how great they are. We do. But qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more quick and easy, just like these questions. William, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, if you weren't in marketing at all or business, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd probably be an economist. Favorite book or podcast or TV show you've been checking out? Just finished Nine Perfect Strangers. Uh, highly recommend. If you could live anywhere remotely for, for a week, to work from a week, where would it be? Probably Big Sky, Montana. Ooh, that's a great answer. Um, what advice would you give to a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? Okay, so I'll limit this. If it's a B2B company, I would say... Yep. Make a really good case for having your most experienced uh, and hopefully career SDRs handling your inbound leads. That's going to make the biggest difference ever in terms of the return on your marketing investment. That's it. That's all we got for today. William, this has been absolutely awesome having you on the show. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? Well, obviously, everybody check out Revenue Diet. Dot io uh, for the new website, uh, new brand, new everything. Uh, super cool. Um, and any uh, anything else uh, to plug or any final thoughts? No, thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Really love the conversation and and uh, you know appreciate all you do. Can't wait to 
to, to, to listen to this and just keep listening to all the great content you're producing. Appreciate it, William. Thanks so much. Thank you. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.